0: Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening, my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the fabulous state virtual school located in Missoula, Montana. And you're joining us tonight for episode 39 on February 1st, 2017. And joining me as always, Wes Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer.
1: Good evening from relatively balmy Oklahoma City. I'm the director of technology at the Cassidy School and excited to to be here. And we're an hour early because we don't want to keep our Floridian friends uh, on the edge of the Caribbean up too late. So welcome to Jen Carey.
2: Hi, guys. I'm Jen Carey. And yes, I'm in Miami, Florida, where we had a high today of 76 degrees. It's a wonderful time to visit the state. I'm the uh, Director of Educational Technology at the Ransom Everglades School, um, located in Coconut Grove.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. So um, as usual, we have a lot of links um, from this week's technology news that we hope to add an educational technology spin to. You can see all of our links, and I don't think we've gotten through all the topics yet um, in our year of doing the podcast, but... Um, if you want to see what's kind of on our minds beyond um, what we're talking about or get a little more in depth on the topics that we're talking about in any given show, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, and see a whole list of links in a Google document that we share um, with our listeners and viewers. And Jen, as you are our guest tonight, is there a topic you'd like to start off with?
2: Um. Oh, wow. I didn't expect you to throw that at me. I, I really like uh, the starting discussion, the debate about screen time, because I feel like Every time I have a chat with a parent or a teacher or an administrator, screen time—good, bad, um, in between—always comes up. So I'd love to start with that. Okay,
1: so I'll I'll, I'll kind of summarize article a little bit and and launch this in. Jason, I think you may be adding some cat enhanced effects tonight with your microphone. So are oh, you using your your monster mic again? I'm not, but is that? Better? Oh, okay. okay. Oh, yeah. No, it, okay. yeah, yeah, a little bit. So there's an article in the latest Edutopia – well, I guess who knows what this is. It's just a link, so we don't know if it's in any print print version. But uh, it's uh, called Reframing the Debate About Screen Time, and it is by – do a shout-out to Beth Holland. Beth is part of the EdTech Teacher Group, and I met her in Chicago a few, uh, few years ago for one of their events. And mm-hmm. anyway, it's talking about how – it's not just about the quantity of screen time; it's also about what we're doing with the screen. And uh, I think I don't know if I put this one in, but there was a there was a, a survey that just came out that was talking about comparing millennials and uh, Gen Xers, and actually finding that the mm-hmm. the older Gen Xers are spending more more time than the millennials. Am I getting that right? As far as the yeah,
2: it was in the New York Times. I'll pull yeah. that link up. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and we can drop that one in. So, uh, that was, that was one of the articles, and, and certainly I, I'm all for, you know, talking about creating and, um, you know, the ways in which we can remix media and create with media and not just, you know, consume and consuming is fun and consuming is great, but, you know in in i can I think i can say this safely you know in our school community i think there are a lot of teachers and and even parents that really have a consumption only uh, um, perception mm-hmm. of of students with media and so we really have a challenge and an opportunity to help inform them about the benefits of creating And um, I'm even considering doing something I I did a number of years ago called a Mother's Day podcast with some of our pre-K kids because, you know, asking nice open-ended questions to preschoolers and kindergartners about, you know, what does your mommy, um, you know, do when you go to school? Um, You know, how does your mommy show you she loves you? Um, What else do we do? Um, You know, just – Just asking, you know, asking these kind of questions and having kids express those things. Parents don't necessarily associate the tablet time, you know, with with those kinds of of Mm -hmm. activities. So there's one other article in there, and Jason and I had spent uh, quite a bit of time Oh, a, no, a number of episodes ago uh, looking at this uh, time magazine article, screens in schools are a $60 billion hoax. Oh. And so there's a really nice response article called an, an educator's response, to the screens in schools time editorial. And it's mm-hmm. talking about, you know, breaking, breaking down the screen revolution and the, you know, that, that whole article. And that was, I mean, that, I didn't actually hear as much as I expected I would about that article. Um, but you know, the guys has got a book and, I don't know. That's one of those reactionary sort of things that that resonates with people. And I don't know. There's a group that likes to hear that. Yeah, you know, the new generation, it's all horrible. It's all screen time and it's all <laughs> evil and bad. And certainly it's a lot more multifaceted than, you know, that kind of simplistic
0: view of screens. But. I would add to right. that that part of the problem we run into is that like it, it, it's not an all or one proposition, right? Uh-huh. Like it's not like we're gonna uh, weld the screen to, to your head or you never gonna see the screen ever. And I think that's where the debate gets lost, I think, in a lot of classrooms is that we need to empower teachers to take more active control of helping, guiding, and mentoring students and even modeling right. the behavior so that they can do a better job of helping kids understand that. Where the first article, the Ethutopia article, is interesting is that it it tries to you know make that argument that there is a nuance here. Like it, it it's never a good idea to ban screens, right? Because you're you're not helping the problem. In fact, if anything, you're making it worse. But right. there is a a very nuanced uh, in and out that has to happen here for someone that is really tech savvy you are putting the screen up and down fairly regularly. And it may mean sometimes you are out absolutely out of control um, and you recognize that and you take a stop to it, but that's a very advanced skill set that we should be teaching inside of classrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I read that Epitopia article, I'm reminded about something about my my very awesome wife. Um, she grew up without a TV in their home and um, it's funny because the TV is very distracting to her now. And I'm not arguing if she should have had a TV, but like when the TV's on in our home, it could be terrible, terrible, terrible television that is of no entertainment, social, political value at all. And she is, is in tune with it. To walk by, zoom, immediately focus in on it and can't let go of it. And I think part of the reason why is that you know, I'm not saying that, that whatever extra TV time I had as a kid was a good idea, but I am better able to turn it off or ignore it or have radio right. TV on in the background. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, that, that that's always a good idea, but there is some nuance there that we're missing in this debate.
2: Right. Well, a good friend of mine at WIS used to tell me that he talks to parents and says all screen time is not equal. And that's an important part of the conversation. And it's not just, It's not just screens, right? I've had students who bury themselves in books. um, Absolutely. And it's about the behavior. And maybe what we should be looking at in conjunction with screen time is really what what is healthy behavior and what does an unhealthy outlet look like? Uh, because I'm also not a fan of saying like, well, you should never be using a screen to play a game or you should never be using a screen for shopping for shoes. Because the reality is we all also need downtime and whatever that downtime might look like is about finding healthy and happy norms. And I, I loved Derek's um, Derek Willard's response um, to this um, article. Um, It's a really thought. If you haven't, any of the, um, our viewers tonight have, have not read Derek's response. It's, it's brilliant. It really addresses, um, some serious critiques of the, of the Time article and the, and the benefits of using screens for young people and for education. Um, and Wes, going back to your, your comment about the New York Times, right? Like I'm a Gen Xer. I feel like I'm way more glued to my phone than my students are. Um, it's still flashy and new and, cool to me. Um, Whereas for them, it's just kind of more of a way of life. And so I think a lot of times we transfer our own feelings about our own tech use onto our students or onto our children Um, instead of reacting to like, wait, this is me. This is not them. Um, Kids seem to be much more able to give up tech than their parents or some of their their history teachers who might be directors of educational technology.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned reading, and it, and it reminds me of flow. And maybe you all can help me pronounce the name. But it's you know, check me high, or how do you say his name? The 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 guy who who has the theory of flow. Flow is when you're in an experience oh. that you lose track of time because you're so into it. And right. Generally, I think most adults and, and probably almost universally all teachers, you know, would love for every child to join the reading club, have flow experience where they just want to keep on reading, you know, probably that novel. Maybe you don't get that with nonfiction, but, you know, be so into it that you just can't put it down. But what happens with screens, and this is a very fina- fascinating phenomenon, is is in a way we're just kind of terrified and scared. I mean, Minecraft is like digital crack, and right. and, and I'm I'm not a gamer, but just lately, and that's what I was tweeting. Jason, you know, was asking me this old laptop. I'm putting an, an SSD in it and put some more RAM in it, you know, for our little Minecraft home server. Um, yeah, I can I can sit there and and, and pass away a few hours, uh, and and my youngest daughter is the same way, and it's pretty fascinating to me how concerned adults will get about that which generally is a very active, creative, like mm-hmm. when you are, you know, having to avoid monsters and you're having to find resources and you're figuring out what to build, you know, it is not watching television. And yep. so maybe it just has to do with what's normal. And um, we are aware, you know, that, that passive screen time is is not a great thing to do in excess, but um, I, I think it's something we need to grapple with. And I, definitely you know come in the willard article and I, cuz i think that as educators we all need to be very conversant and and ready to respond to these kinds of of questions and and look at at how we can maybe help change some people's minds about screens i i see that mm-hmm. as part of my role as a tech director is to help open up minds of the constructive creative uh you know, transformative in a, in a very beneficial way role that screens can play in our lives because we've got a lot of fear over that. And I think a lot of, of unwarranted bias that probably starts with the idea that all screen time is the same. And that's probably a,
0: a great point right. to try to make sure that people don't assume. And I'm, I would add one. Oh, please go ahead.
2: I was going to say, I'm so glad you brought up television because I actually had a one peer, uh, a peer of mine complained that kids today don't watch television.
0: <laughs> Neil, and,
1: Post, Neil Postman would have right? been seconding that.
2: And I'm like, you realize that when we were kids, everyone commented how we were the generation being raised by the idiot box. Like none of us were going to be able to do anything with our lives because we grew up in front of TV. And yeah, I probably watched more TV than I should as a kid. i probably watch more TV than I should now. I'd much rather have students online creating and engaging and problem-solving been sitting back and watch some of the television we certainly watched in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, um, I got a,
0: a couple of years couple of years ago at a trivia night at at a local establishment. I might have helped our team win by winning or by answering 10 out of 10 70s game show questions. So, uh, yeah, and I turned out mostly okay. I mean, I, I do have a mustachioed cat in my lap right now, so i have obviously I've gone <laughs> down some dark dark, dark alleys, but. I think the other thing here that that is also kind of an adult problem that, and I think kids struggle with this too, but um, the notion of, um, uh, of of being able to own your tech to tweak it in a way mm-hmm. that you can help decrease the distraction. And and full disclosure, this is a topic I love. Um, I do one hour and three hour workshops on this particular topic for adults. In case you're interested, knife.com. But the um, bottom line is is that it, that we uh, adults are less likely, I think, to tweak a, a device to make sure – actually, I'm not going to say that. Kids and adults both equally suck at this. To, um, to tweak a device, to um, put it in context, right? Like a notification is a great example of this, right? Mm-hmm. Most people's notifications are set up to be 100% equal, right? Not all screen time is equal. Not all notifications are equal. So uh-huh. every single cool event is like, hey there, hey there, hey there. Hey, hey, wait, hey there hey there and it's everything from a text message from my mom which is very important to an ad from Amazon which is not important at all and mm-hmm. no wonder we're having a problem like the uh, uh earlier West we had that article from the 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 guy that said that that uh, app makers are using the same terrible strategies that Vegas game makers are using to make them addictive and that's part of the process, right? It's constantly letting you know, hey there, hey there, that there's something going on. And so I right. think a great place for adults to start in classrooms is to say, you know, first of all, uh if you're answering text messages as a teacher in a class, please stop. Um, you know, uh there's obviously good reasons that to to ignore that rule, but generally speaking, if you're grumpy for your kids doing that, you shouldn't do that yourself. But but right. second you' say that you know I was a little tired of my phone buzzing all the time, so look what I did last night. I only have you know these two apps now are sending me notifications, everything else is turned off, and I think that modeling is just mm-hmm. so important and it's just missing in a lot of cases
1: two two quick things, and maybe then we'll we'll jump on to something else. I think your cat may be scratching a little bit jason, so we're we're getting a little a little cat scratch um. All right. So yeah, restrain mm-hmm. the must. And actually, I just noticed the mustache. So that is a naturally occurring cat mustache, or did you, you know, is that an enhancement?
0: Uh, no, that's that's naturally occurring. <laughs> no, no, we don't augment our cats here. So for, for for those
1: of you not watching the live stream or seeing the video version, you you're you've missed out on the mustachioed cat. The other thing mm-hmm. I'm going to say from an educational lens standpoint with this is, I think it's really important that we not be on the All tech is great. It's all gravy and wonderful. Um, There are no problems. You know, our, our girls now are 16 and 13 and the role that Instagram and likes and peer group and feedback, and I, and I should not just point the finger at them, you know, for me as well. Um, you know Lee Colbert, who's down in Florida, actually a couple of years ago uh, wrote a blog post. She She's like a, a you know geeky mama's her her blog, and it was like, okay, how many of you check your phone immediately when you wake up? And yep. that blog post has stuck with me, and I'm and I try, I mean, I'm at least a little bit more intentional to not just. Open my phone and go to Twitter you know because certainly part of what I think I do look at and it's that idea of, of like the slot machine and the random feedback is you know you're looking to see if people like stuff and they retweeted and who replied to you and who's right. you know, that whole interaction and so there there's powerful psychology and we've talked about this on the show before that we do not have a full appreciation for the same smartphone pretty much that we're handing to adults we're handing to 12 year olds eleven year olds ten year olds and we're really not taking adequate stock of the psychological effects and I'm not saying you know, let's not give children any smartphones, but it's it's one of these things. We, we're we're doing this big strategic plan on digital citizenship, and we're really close to having it ready for our headmaster. We've gotten feedback, and we just just actually up till five o'clock today, we're we're making modifications to it. And and we're and screen time is what I think we're going to have um, a parent student panel about this semester. Uh, we've got lots of things going on, but I don't think it's going to be very hard to have a useful illuminating conversation with parents and students when we talk about screen time, the issues, you know, what kinds of rules we we make and what kinds of strategies we have around that. Mm-hmm. It's just it, it's one of these things in the 21st century that it, that it it can definitely be positive and it can definitely, you know, enhance our lives in a lot of ways. But we would we do a disservice to ourselves if we you know are perceived as well that's just the pro technology you know right. person who always loves all tech. So. Anyway. Right. So box over.
0: <laughs> okay, Wes, where should we go next?
1: Well, I want to talk about Club Penguin. (laughs) I don't know how many of you played Club Penguin, but Club Penguin, um, I do a shout out to my friend Karen Montgomery in St. Louis, Um, you know, at the beginning, the dawn of really an early era of the web, which where we moved kind of beyond the early, what we call web 2.0, the read, write web. Oh my gosh, we can set up a blog. Oh my gosh, we can, you know, put photos online and look at all these slicker Mm. pictures. All of this, uh, you know, Karen really got in with her daughter into Club Penguin and Disney bought Club Penguin. It was a, a, a Canadian company. I think it was about 11 years ago that it started. And it's a virtual world and you're a penguin and you waddle around and you play games and you build an igloo and you, you know, get points and you can put on, you know, clothes and are different, you know, different items and stuff. And it's a virtual world. Well. This week, Club Penguin announced they are shutting down. And so my 13 year old is just about distraught because she likes Minecraft and makes Minecraft videos. But, uh, how to be, what is it, a secret moo or there's some, one of her videos on her YouTube channel that has just thousands of views is, you know, her, uh, basically doing a, a recording and with little text bubbles and speeding it up in the screen flow. Anyway, she loves it. Why is this a, a important thing to talk about? Well, Copyright wise, somebody, people have figured out how to, how to have. Um, private club penguin servers. And so this has been a challenge because on the Disney version, you can't swear and you can't, um, you know, ha- it's not Tinder. You, you're not supposed to go, you know, hook up and meet people and, you know, use it as a, as a dating thing or whatever. There's, there's guidelines. Um, and there's also hacking. There's people that have created bots, you know, to rack up points. And in the private servers, which are technically illegal and Disney is shut down, but they're still proliferating because they released their source code openly and they say now we're fair use uh, and we're, we're, we're not profit and all of these things. Um, there's a whole lot of issues here. And, and so my daughter at age 13 is now and I think she signed up and joined um, a private club Penguin server. They're going to continue with a mobile version. But, um, you know, virtual worlds and kids in virtual worlds and and then the challenge to to us as parents to say, OK, do we want to say it's OK to be on this virtual server? Because, you know, with actually the Club Penguin one, there were there were moderators and people could become secret agents and they had a whole system for trying to encourage safety and making sure that, you know, people weren't being inappropriate. So. Are you guys at all, have you all done anything with Club Penguin before? And, you know, any thoughts about all of that for <laughs> just virtual worlds and kids, I guess, because it's also advice for parents, right? Like, how, right.
2: how do you cancel me as the dad? You know, what should we do about Club Penguin private servers? So I've never done Club Penguin, but I certainly have played my mm-hmm. share of MMORPGs, um, which it sounds like Club Penguin is.
1: Well, I mean, it's definitely... I have not... Are you talking like World of Warcraft kind of stuff? Yeah. Or? Good for you. See, I have not ever played that. Super nerdy. Well, hey, you're. it's okay. You can let your, your inner nerd mm-hmm. out here on the EdTech Situation Room. No, I haven't played anything like that. I mean, this is, this is definitely, you know, uh, hundreds and, and thousands of people. I mean, there's millions of people overall on the servers. But, right. yeah, simultaneously. But it's not like they're doing really quests and, you know, conquering things together. It's, it's much more sort of, I mean, there's, there's little mini games to play Mm -hmm. and, you know, build your house and, and uh, I don't know, you know, you know, get clothes, get points and stuff like that.
2: So, Um, wow. So, I mean, I can only speak from my experience, which is not club penguin. I think with these types of games, there's so much that relies on the developer um one of the things I do like about Warcraft is I feel like Blizzard has really gone and taken an active role in trying to combat trolling and harassment and behavior online. Um, in a realistic effective way. Is Blizzard um, a
1: developer or the company?
2: Blizzard is the company. They're the they're the, the developer and the company. And they they do Warcraft, but they do a whole lot of other things. Um, and when I used to play War, when I started playing Warcraft you know, a decade ago versus now, um, I have to, like, I started out Warcraft by, like, pretending my mic was broken until I'd gotten to know the people I played with for a while because I didn't want people to know I was female playing because you got a lot of harassment. Um, whereas now Blizzard takes a lot of that very, very seriously. And I feel very secure in the gaming environment. Um, I, I guess my advice for parents would be like, you got to roll up your sleeves and see what your kid's playing with. Um, with these kinds of things, because so much is on the developer. I'd like to think Disney would be a little more proactive in terms of safety and security, but sadly, I I can't, I can't. Necessarily say that would be the truth, given my experience with a lot of developers. Right?
1: They have been, um, but the thing is, now you know, it's if you want to play old style Club Penguin, you have to do it on these private servers that ah. other people are doing. You know, that are outside of Disney's scope. And there's right. really fascinating. I'll probably write a post about it because there's there's really fascinating issues about copyright and about fair use, and and then hacking too. And right, you know, um, it's almost like creative mode on these private servers because you have everything. Um, you have unlimited resources in the same way in Minecraft when you when you go creative. But right, the, the last link I put under that series uh, is from TechCrunch uh, yesterday. Lego Life is a new social network where kids can share their creations. And so, I
2: saw that
1: we're gonna have more proliferation of of virtual worlds, and it's a moving target. You know, I don't even know if anybody buys Webkinz anymore, uh, sweetie. I'm installing something. Um, if you if you want to shut that down it's okay. i got to go i've been borrowing somebody's laptop i'll be right back
0: <laughs> and continuing on um the um i know nothing about that lego story do you
2: um so lego just announced their social media site as a site specifically for kids under 13 nice. um, it's a social media site it collects no I, I haven't investigated enough into it other than the basic press releases, which it doesn't collect personal data. The kids don't post photos, um, allowing kids kind of a flavor of social media without forcing them to be in social media. Um, I like the idea of it a lot. Um, the practicalities of it though, those are a whole other thing, right? Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know I will say that broadly Lego has done such an outstanding job of, of, uh, kind of withstanding change in the last 50 years. I just don't think there's another company on earth that, that has really demonstrated its ability to effortlessly move in and out of the way people interact with things. Um, and it's a smart move on their part. Um, I, I, I've seen some, uh, I, have seen some, some, these are usually one-off people, things they're making, but I know there's a lot of interest right now in companies that are looking to create basically Lego parts have become internet of things uh, uh, devices that you right. know allow you to take the Lego robotic stuff into, you know, the next stratosphere um, of, of items. And um, it's, <laughs> you know, considering the joy I had playing with Legos in the 80, early eighties, um, that, that the fact that it's still relevant that way is pretty amazing stuff.
2: Yeah. Lego with their robotics and just the essential Legos, right? Cause you can still give a kid yeah. a big pile of Legos and a lot of a kid give me a big pile of Legos I'll entertain myself for an hour Yeah, yeah um, but yeah you're right Lego has really innovated um, impress- um really impressively I'm just I'm interested to see how they're gonna delve into this world I think it's got yeah. a lot of promise I think it's a company um, that has a good strong history and hopefully are gonna do some pretty some pretty great things and they've already got a foothold into education with their Lego robotic stuff great. Well, so.
0: if they can pull off the notion of, of of getting kids to connect about Lego-related items yeah. without, you know, obviously there needs to be some value to them, right, otherwise why we'll put up a social network, but, you know, manage to effortlessly move in and out of the restrictions that exist for collecting data from, from people under the age of 13, but at the same time, make it a useful site. I think that's where Club Penguin um, actually excelled over almost every other tool is that a lot of people try to put together successful social networks for kids, but but Pegum mentioned you something that was both useful and gave off a perception of safety, which a lot of folks have not done a very good job at.
2: Right. Well, and I mean, it's, it's tricky. It's almost a counterintuitive business model, right? Because part yep. of what you want to do is sell everyone's data. Yeah. Um, so I, I posted the BBC news release, but I don't think it's as as lengthy an article as Wes is. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it's, It looks promising, I got to admit. I'm I'm interested to see where Lego goes with this.
0: Hey, Wes, what about those Legos? Hey,
1: I I was just realizing when I was over there, Jen, it's just like last time when when my bandwidth was like at an all-time low. (laughs) Wes leaves the call and Jen's like, okay, I guess we'll have to. Anyway. I just kept talking. Great event you were awesome. You were great. And see, you've come back to the show. That's what's so affirming. I was like, <laughs> I she is never going to come back to this crazy show where this guy has a show and doesn't even have good bandwidth at his house to keep going. But
2: what are you talking about? It's a show where I get to talk about technology stuff with other technology nerds who are not going to look at me like I'm weird. <laughs> That's right. Of course I'm going to come back. That is good. That
1: is good. Yeah. I don't, the, the Lego stuff. I mean, we're, I don't know. I, I think again, you know, you said it, it it's important to, to get in there with your kids, you know, let them teach you, you know, play. Um, I've def, you know, definitely have done that a little bit with Minecraft with our kids. What's funny on the Minecraft side, our son's a freshman in college now. In 2012, I um, con- convinced him to do a, a little video about Minecraft for K-12 Online, I was just watching it now. And because I've played so much more with Rachel or whatever, now I'm like, oh, my gosh, you built that. And it's it's crazy how, you know, sometimes you don't have background knowledge about something and you watch it and you think, oh, okay. Anyway, and I've gone back and now I'm like, wow. Um right. There's a lot of really good parenting interactions to have, and, and things to navigate. There, I don't know if there's a word for this in digital citizenship, but developmentally, sometimes kids just don't realize what the boundaries are and what's appropriate and not. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not listening. I'll share this. She won't watch the live stream. Okay. But over the holidays, you know, Instagram now now has a go live button, and mm-hmm. um, our daughter, you know, is you know is on Twitter and YouTube and has an Instagram. Well, she had a friend over and they were doing a live Instagram broadcast, cooking something in the kitchen. And I was there in my pajamas and she's like shooting at me. I'm like, honey, that is not cool. <laughs> it just, anyway, didn't realize that um, that that's that's different than screencasting your your YouTube channel or your, right. your Minecraft game, um, you know, going live like that. So it's important to have conversations, beneficial to learn things, and but also to help navigate, you know, what are the boundaries? What are we not going to share? you know, uh, no, we, we're not going to go on go on YouTube live from your bedroom. I know you can do that. I know you can do it from your phone. Um, these live streaming applications make that even easier. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there's all, we're also not saying, you know, don't ever talk to someone online. And we had a prosecutor at our school who had some good things to say, but he doesn't have kids. Uh, and his message was basically never talk to someone online that you have not met face-to-face. That doesn't work in our family. And I don't I remember back in probably ninety nine when I was still in the elementary computer lab um, having, you know, saying something to students like that. And a girl raised man. My parents met online, you know, It's like, oh, you know, and over like half adults. So there's some big statistic about how many kids, how many, how many adults, uh, 18 and over, you know, meet virtually. And I I have some friends who are single and who are. Have um, used a whole lot of different tools, and they say, "Yeah, it really speeds up the dating process because I can I can weed people out, and I can you know find right. things out that I might have to waste a bunch of dates and you know maybe a bunch of money you know before I can find out." So, anyway, right. it's a nuanced well, landscape where it's not just a one you know. Don't ha- having some kind of statement like "Don't ever talk to someone on online that you've right. met" does not it doesn't work.
2: There's that great tweet, right? Where the woman says in the 90s, we were all, or 90s and oh nots, we were all taught, don't talk to strangers on the internet. Don't get in strangers' cars. 2017, literally summon strangers from the internet to get into their car using <laughs> apps like Uber and Lyft. And I was like, oh, like, so I'll periodically say to my students, who's, who knows you should never talk to a stranger on the internet. And they all raise their hand. and like, who uses Uber and summons a stranger from the internet to get into their car? And they all nice. sheepishly kind of go, oh Yeah.
1: That's a really good, yeah. I haven't seen that. Right, but
2: great. it, but it's true. But it's also something age appropriate. You probably don't want your eleven-year-old taking an Uber, um, but you know, your your twenty-year-old is a different story, and and a lot in between. And it's just a different new form of you know social competency that we all had to learn. Um, and now our student children are navigating in a new realm that we didn't have to learn because it wasn't around, but we're all kind of learning with them. They just tend to learn faster.
1: I'm listening right now to Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable. It (laughs) is blowing my mind. It is fantastic. And one of the best things he said early on is, just get used to being a newbie. You know, we probably all in technology have people come up to us and say, you gotta know, I just am not a techie. I'm not da-da-da. You know, there's this whole thing that they have to say at the beginning. And what Kelly says is basically, Get over it. You know, we are all newbies. The tech is always changing. We are never going to arrive and be the expert on all of these things. And anyway, that just kind of resonated with me. And it's,
2: I don't well, know for sure, the
1: pace of change, the pace of, do you agree with that, Jason? The pace of change is faster right now than or before, or not? Or am I off that?
0: Um, it seems like it's going a little faster, and part of it is, in my mind, is that um, because there's been more widespread adoption of, of, of the core technologies, by core technologies I mean mobile phones, um, you know, when when the desktop computer was the means of gaining this access. I mean, a lot of people had desktop computers. My parents had desktop computers, right? So it it, it wasn't that far from a real possibility. There was still a pretty big barrier to entry. Now for a 100 bucks, you can get a serviceable cell phone, um, and, and a plan for $50 a month that gives you effectively a computer. And so it's, you know, it, it's going to uh, even using some long tail logic, right? Like even a small percentage of people adopting it now because of the widespread adoption of of, of mobile technology means it's, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I'm obviously getting super into home automation right now. Um, that's a really narrow topic. I'm pretty sure I'm I'm very early days on this, but it's not that far from a realm of possibility because people have cell phones to think that um you know someone might go buy a smart light light bulb or someone might go by speaking of, hey Google, turn on my entertainment center. Yeah, turn the, turn the center Done. Um that uh you know that's a um you know that that that's not that far away for someone to go buy a smart plug and set it up with their phone and do interesting things with it. So I think that's a, a big difference in in the pace of things.
2: Right. Well, and remember the point of entry when we were younger. So our first computer, I had to program DOS to access anything. Remember DOS? I do. And so, like, if I wanted to play the Winnie the Pooh game or Burger Time or access Word Perfect, because that existed before Win, you know, Word, it was all programming DOS. It's so much easier now, um, in terms of accessibility. And, and in terms of what you were saying, Wes, I think the difference between techies is non-techies is techies are like, oh, yeah, I'll figure it out. Like, we're willing to, we're willing to kind of look foolish or play around with things and don't need to know the answers. And we're not, a, like, Back with my Apple IIe, yeah. Like you could break it pretty easily. We had it next to the phone before we learned that wasn't okay. Um, but now it's practically impossible to break something just by using it, you know, by typing into it. Yeah. Um, and so it's, yeah. I mean, and here's just the thing:
1: AI is touching us in ways that we don't even realize. So I mean, we finished dinner tonight. The girls, you know, left. I I turn on Apple TV. I go to YouTube, I go to my recommendations and it pops up right there, you know, a Sergey Brin interview at the Economic World Forum from 3 days ago. And I'm mm-hmm. so now I'm watching that, listening to him, talking about AI, and he's saying when he was in charge of of Google X or whatever, you know, they had this thing called Google Brain and they were like it doesn't work very well or whatever. In a very short amount of time, he said, Google Brain is touching virtually every single product that Google has. You right. know? And so Jason's got, got his home, and I'm you know, talking to Siri, figuring out what, it, what we can do. Uh, yeah. I have Alexa in here, so. And what are you, what are you using it for? Um, Alexa. Should...
2: Turn my lamp off. <laughs>
1: yeah. And these are small things, but, you know, that capability is just – ramping up fast
0: absolutely yep
1: have you had your alexa order something um you didn't want because someone on tv said alexa order me the da da da
2: i did not because i saw the news report about that and set a pin number that i have to enter if i want to order anything Uh because i actually with my online shopping i like to really price hunt so i don't use alexa to order anything but i do use her honestly, I use her a lot to play podcasts and audiobooks in my house, but I mean, there's also a whole other privacy connection to Alexa and Google and what will be Siri is going to become soon um, right. when Apple comes out with their speaker powered by Siri. Right.
1: And we should follow up on that article. Cause it was a few weeks ago when uh, law enforcement uh, tried, tried to subpoena the Alexa stream, you know, from a right. house to say, Oh, Maybe there's something there let's see if we can get that and definitely amazon is trying to fight that because if you know people, <laughs> we are being recorded you know to degrees that we're not really aware of and right as, as jason knows from his google history you know um do you is it is has google home affected your history by the way are you seeing any of that history yeah. there
0: Including my wife's voice too, so <laughs> I had to kind of show her that and say that. Just please be aware. And I, I, I would turn it off. I, actually, I don't care either way. I would turn it off, except that I like to show it off when I'm doing um, uh, workshops related to privacy, right? So I, I think it's 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 a better story than it is a, a troublesome uh, a thing for me. But you know, I, I I'm sure Google's got a good reason for doing it. So I. Unfortunately I'm all in well, Google. Well, what
1: they're what they're big on is collecting all the data, right? And that's where I think Apple is is harder pressed perhaps, but maybe not. If if cuz we're I've turned on Hello Siri, so maybe Google or maybe Apple is now recording everything that I'm saying no matter what, cuz that's right. what really what drives AI is our monstrous, you know, databases of information that they can then call through and, you know, be able to learn from. I just helped my our, our 13-year-old last night set up two-step verification on her phone, you know, because one of the things this brings up is make sure your Google account doesn't get hacked. Oh right? yeah. Because if it has all of that history, there's no way you want somebody, you know, and as yep. we've talked about before, John Podesta was, was tricked by an email where someone said, you know, what, was it definitely reset your path? Definitely trust or don't trust. I mean, there was like a one word difference and he clicked it yep. and, and and boom. So, oh mm. We're yeah. not trying to scare you off the internet, but we are saying be safe. No, be, and be,
2: be smart, right? Two factor authentication. I get a little annoyed by it, but I still have it set up. My school is an internet. My school is a cell phone dead zone. So it can be a little challenging when I've erased cash and cookies on my computer at work and I want to check my personal Gmail. And I usually have to wait till I get home to sign back in. You can, put up, authentication.
1: you can set up authenticator. I just did this with Rachel. So you can set up SMS as your primary and use Google Authenticator as your secondary. And then I
2: had a, a bad experience with Google Authenticator because it can reset if you have to reset your phone. Really? Yeah. So if you have to do, which if you're like me, you have to do a, you know, a factory reset on your phone once or twice a year. The yep. minute you do a factory reset <laughs> on your phone, your authenticator on your phone is null employed, which is also why I have. You want to talk about online security? Blizzard was the origin of getting hacked. I have an actual hardwire authenticator for Blizzard. Ooh. Well, so, and
1: that was something that Facebook just added. I don't know that I dropped that link in, but they just—that's like a USB key, right? That's a physical.
2: Um, no, no, it's exactly like the authenticator, but instead of on your phone, where it can reset if you reset your. Phone. It was like
1: an RSA number, where it generates a number. Every minute it generates. But I worked for AT&T for two years. That's how we access corporate email. You had to have your RSA number and put in your six digit code. And if I didn't have my key chain with me, I was not on my email.
2: CS, uh, the CIA and NSA still operates because it's still one of the most secure ways. Yep. Um, out there. And so that's really what Google Authenticator does. It's just a, a digital version of it. But my issue is that all it takes is one reset and the whole thing kind of gets messed. I, I learned that the hard way. Um with my word.
1: I, I, I learned to deactivate your uh two step when you change
2: phones. So Yeah. Um but sometimes it'll just be my bigger issue was when I had my phone freeze up and had to, you know, you had to re- factory reset it. You cannot disable the two factor without access to the authenticator. Really? Yeah. And so It happened to me one time, and so I just don't use it for that reason. Uh, I don't use that authenticator. I'll I'll still use two-step because I think two-step is the best way to ensure security. And, in fact, Instagram recently notified me that somebody from Brazil was trying to locate log into my account. And they were like, are you in Brazil? And I was like, sadly, no. Um, (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, it'll... They're getting better at that, but I mean ultimately it's up to you and dealing with the occasional annoyance of having to have something text the code to your phone and enter the code in yeah um it's still it's the new identity theft is access to your social media
1: well, on the security topic, I think Jason, you had tweeted at me at the Austrian Hotel, locking the doors with uh with uh, ransomware. you want to talk about that oh that's
0: terrifying yeah uh, so a pretty nice hotel in Austria had an incident where their um, their their door locks, which I'm pretty sure were the um, um, the uh, RFID tag ones, where you just kind of rub it against the uh, uh, the lock for it to to then pop out. Uh, someone had hacked into their system and locked everyone into their room, um, and then demanded I think it was like eighteen thousand dollars in Bitcoin to to undo it. And it's it's the same kind of ransomware thing. It's not high enough to where it's a better value for you to take an ax and get in the door that way, but it's uh, enough to make it worth someone's time to do it. And sure enough, they paid it in order to get, um, in order to get the, uh, the rooms unlocked. And I, you know, like I you mentioned earlier, Wes, like you don't trust the tech people. that are blindly all in. Right. But this is the kind of stuff we need to be careful about. And if you have crappy, uh, uh, internet of things, uh, items that are hooked to the internet, but maybe don't have great firmware or, or terrible security. This is the kind of stuff that you're going to subject yourself to in your own home. Imagine to be locked out of your own home because someone hacked your door and they send you a text message saying all it's going to take is $300 for you to get back in. Press here to access your PayPal account. Uh, that, that's, that's in place. And One of my... I think that's a big deal.
1: One of my friends here in Oklahoma City has has been burglarized a couple times, and the most recent time was in the last like month or so, and it was because of a garage door opener and a code and some kind of scanner, I guess, that they can use. So he's he's not using an IoT door lock, but yeah, I'm uh I'm not I'm not going for that stuff yet. I think personally, the security stuff has to mature. Um, I am looking. There's a switch, a WeMo switch. Uh, we've got digital signage now in about six different locations on our, on our campus. And we've got the old school timer, you know, as far as like you'd put on a light when you go out of town. Sure. And, but it's programmable. It's a, it, the ones mm-hmm. I, my parents had was like a dial and you lift up the piece of plastic and, you know, it's not, not very precise. So this is a digital thing. And it, and fortunately the uh, Best Buy Insignia 55 inch TVs, which have come down to $279. Unbelievable. Wow. Uh 379 is the usual, but they've come down in sale price for that. Um they come when, when the power just comes on, they come on. Because that was a whole thing about, oh great, now does somebody have to run around school with remote controls to to push these. Anyway, um I'm interested for that in looking at a switch that we can have with an app and, you know, be able to to tap a button and, and turn something on or have a schedule, you know, that we say at 730, I want you to turn on or or whatever. But I don't know that that's really ready for enterprise. Those are designed for the home. Yep. And so I don't know what that looks like if I have four of them. And I also don't know if a kid's going to be able to walk up with their Bluetooth device, you know, connect to the Wiimote. And and yeah. so I think I'll delete right. the schedule. So. Anyway, we um, anyway, it's a
0: Weibo that's powering my Google Home setup with my entertainment center. I bought the newest version; they just released a new version of it, and so it's twenty-five. Yeah, that up.
2: doesn't block your other plugs.
0: Yep, yeah, no. it's super awesome, and and that's what I'm using with my Google Home. Um, and I also, speaking of you know, bad Internet of Things devices, I've kind of fallen in love with these really stupid Bluetooth uh, light bulbs. Uh, that you can buy on Amazon. <laughs> I have one in my kitchen. It's super great. I'm now putting one in my bathroom where I used to have a Bluetooth speaker that was dangerously close to electrocuting me several times. And um, so now I've bought this $22 uh, light that is is going to become my, my you know, like podcast speaker in the morning. Is the it a Bluetooth right?
1: speaker and light?
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, what? it's an LED okay. light bulb and, and Bluetooth. Speaker. You got to yeah, put that 22 in the show bucks.
1: Put that in the show notes.
0: Oh, I I will. I will. I'll get the link of the specific one that I'm using. But, like, this is not hooked up to the internet. It's just Bluetooth. And if someone hacks into my speaker and starts playing Rogue Podcast, I'm okay. But I'm pretty sure this is the example of of the terrible Internet of Things devices that are really the problem, right? If this was Wi-Fi enabled, I'm sure the firmware on here was old and hackable and never going to get updated. And that's the problem.
1: I have a quick story to share related to music playing weirdly on your, um, on your, uh, device. So we're just talking today about our Apple TVs at school. Um, we basically have everything on one network. So across the lake, wherever you are on campus, you can see all the Apple TVs. We have security passwords on there, but you know, we don't really need to see every Apple TV. Well, flashback four years ago, I was in Yukon schools. They had not done like building based subnets to, to, to cordon things off. And so I was in my office. I was an instructional coach. And this weird music just starts playing on my computer and I can see this. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Well, it was the whole district was one network. Um, I had airplay on or air server, which made, you know, made your laptop into a, like an Apple right. TV. And then I just, you know, I hadn't put on a passcode. Well, who needs to put on a passcode? Anyway, I, I figured out what that was, put the passcode on, but yeah, having that happen at your house, um, and, and the reality, cause what is that called? War driving when people would go around to try to find open networks and things like that. Oh, that was one of the coolest science fair projects, by the way, I ever kind of heard in recent time was somebody did a whole survey around the school and they had done an analysis of the open wifi networks and <laughs> anyway, who was open and, and who was hackable. So anyway. I don't know that's yeah. a that's that's a bit of a stream of consciousness but thinking about things playing and you know it it happened at work you know where something that shouldn't have been playing was playing on my computer it would definitely be weird to have you know something like that happen but maybe that maybe that does happen frequently now just with hacks you know when your when your computer system's compromised your system's doing mm-hmm. things that You don't intend for it to do. I don't know. Maybe I suppose you feel violated. I've been a Mac user for a long time, so I haven't had that experience, but I know we're not immune anymore. So, mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, Jason, is anything else you want to kind of talk about? We got a what 10 more minutes.
0: Yeah, let me do a quick follow-up. Uh, we reported to first on the podcast last week that Microsoft is attempting to be competitive with Chromebooks by uh, introducing low-end Windows uh, laptops to compete, and there are more details about that this week. Uh, Mary Jo Foley writes on the All About Microsoft blog that Windows 10 Cloud is now getting referred to in a uh, developer build, and it seems right now that it's a version of Windows I'm assuming it only runs the Edge browser and Microsoft um, uh, universal apps, so the new windowed uh, apps mm-hmm. that work on cell phones and, and desktops and laptops. And I, I will say that um, while I am excited about um, um, uh, the prospect of being more competitors in this space, um, that if Microsoft tries to put a bloated piece of of of, of OS on a low end computer, it's going to be a terrible user experience. The reason why the Chromebook experience works is because you can take relatively low end hardware and have a fast, responsive system um, that is usable in, in context of real, real day to day use. So mm-hmm. I, I would say it's evolving, but ugh.
1: And flash back to two thousand and nine this is why netbooks failed in yeah. several reasons right. the web wasn 't matured in the way that it is now with so much running on h t m l five and not requiring plugins, et cetera. Uh, but we were still trying to run Windows systems on these really underpowered uh, devices and right. and and still the world 's not i mean unix isn 't ready for prime time Chrome is uh, but you know. It's, it's a, it's a different world because of Chrome being built from the ground up to run on really light hardware. And you've talked, Jason, about. You know, resurrecting old, you know, Intel based processors and putting Chromium and, you know, being able to breathe new life into them. And it just, it's so lightweight in terms of what it requires. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what Microsoft, I think we've, we've talked favorably about Microsoft and I haven't been struck by lightning yet. Although I probably, who knows the bridges you burn with people who are fans of other operating systems when you say favorable things, but it is good to see them innovating. Um, but, it, 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 you know, I don't, I'd, I'd be really surprised if uh, if we see some serious competition to that. Um, it, it almost seems like we've reached an inflection point, even with the iPad. Jim, do you see that at all with schools as far as just, you know, maybe not as, as enthusiastically running down the, the iPad path and, and seeing the Chromebook and the management?
2: Than, oh, yeah. It, I mean, well, largely, I mean, Chromebook, unfortunately, I think the big failure with iPads is that people wanted them to be laptops. And iPads yeah. are not laptops. And yeah. so Chromebooks were a great replacement because they're half the price or sometimes a third the price of an iPad. And they're more laptop but they're still not laptops, right? Um, I would say, though, don't ever count out Microsoft. They are the 800-pound gorilla, but they've also got so much money to throw at this problem for so long. Um, I received one of the first, as a, a comp, the first um, Surface tablet. The RT. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. I well, was, they,
1: gave, they gave those away at ISTE a few years yeah, ago.
2: Yeah, oh, you were probably there. Yeah, it was awful. And I was like, why would anyone use this? And then six months ago, I got to play with the Surface Book. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I wish – the price point is extravagant. But, I mean, I guess it's the same price as a MacBook Pro. Wow. Like, if you want to be blown away by a Microsoft product, um, it'll cost you about 1800 bucks. But, man, that is phenomenal. And pair it with OneNote. For your higher, you know, your higher level math, science courses, art courses, architecture. Amazing. Like Microsoft is not blowing me away, but this is why like they have so much money. They could throw, they wrote off what? Like a hundred million dollars on the, on the surface for a while. And before they hit a home run and now they've got to bring the price point down. So yeah, the first, but don't, the first iteration will probably be garbage. I'm not going to lie, but their third iteration. Might just put because I have a lot of complaints about Chromebooks. If they can address the issue with Chromebooks and cost twenty bucks more, that's a yeah. it's a huge resolution
1: iteration, right? We see this. You know, this is a design process. You know, right. this is what companies do, and especially the ones that have lots and lots of money, they can afford to iterate. And if you keep on having a feedback loop with customers, and you've got really smart people who are trying to, you know, make things better you know that the, right. we, we were talking last week if you haven't heard that show uh for any listeners the Ben Wilkoff uh, was was talking about what the Asus I don't I'm not going to get the numbers right but these are the new two different Chromebooks he was he has a video comparing them head to head but looking at the Google Play Store looking at the built-in stylus you know looking at at uh at this hybrid you know this tablet Chromebook hybrid um which is not ready for prime time yet but it will be soon mm-hmm. um it's we're we 're living in rapidly changing times, which makes it you know considerably challenging for technology directors and others making decisions for schools, especially you know thinking about one to one and and thinking about devices and you know what you want to create and make so it's uh yeah. it's i don 't know i i'm not
0: I, I love Apple I love
1: my Macs. love my iPad. me too I have to say that every time because i and you know anyway it's, it's- uh but let's hopefully Apple is going to continue to up the ante, you know, with with the uh, the cloud management. And I I just I don't get it there yet. We're going to switch to a different MDM this summer because is too expensive, and we're at a hundred devices. I think Tab Pilot is the is one of the ones we're definitely looking at. And anyway, I hope that Apple is going to continue to innovate in that space. But they, I, they they're not where Google is in terms of the management side.
2: They aren't. They aren't. But I mean, this is also one of the reasons to uh, emphasize agility and flexibility and um, device agnostic tools and ideas. Uh, I think that's really the solution is, can you switch from one device to another every year if you need to? Um, yeah. because- or is your
1: curriculum locked in to this device? And you'll be like, oh, no, yeah. we've, we've built everything in platform X, not to mention right. names, you know, that doesn't work on something else.
2: Exactly. And and plus, your student might graduate from college and then go work in company A, that's going to be all Windows. And then three years later, get hired at company B, that's going to be a Mac environment or whatever operating systems 10 years from now, right? Yep. So right. you've got to be agile. Um, you've got to be agile. Of course, I'm speaking from a, a great place of privilege where I can say that where I'm not at a a big public district that needs to provide devices for a thousand kids at under X budget. Right. So there's also those, those things that I fortunately don't have to deal with.
0: Right.
1: Well, Jason, do we want to do some geeks of the week? And
0: yeah, sure. I'll go ahead and get it started. Um, And mine's a pretty simple one. And I want to say, I actually mentioned this last week, but um, for those of you that that have ever used the product, Google voice, uh, Google voice is a Google application that allows you to create a universal phone number, uh, the phone number can follow you from device to device, phone number to phone number, and it stays constant. Um, I've used it actually as a business phone before. But the great thing about Google Voice is that Google has not abandoned it. There hasn't been a real update to the service in five years, and they announced, uh, I think it was late last week, that not only are they um, uh, going to push out an update, and there was a beautiful update that updated the, the apps to the kind of new material design that Google is now known for in their mobile application suite, but they promise to keep it up in the future, and so the great thing I always give teachers advice on Google Voice is that I always gave my cell phone number and number out to kids in, in classrooms. That uh, out of the 13 years I had a cell phone, I was in a classroom that was a problem just once, um, and and I think that's an important piece. But Google Voice allows you to essentially. Take your Gmail account, or if you use Google Suite at, at, at your institution, you can actually have them turn on Google Voice as part of the Google Suite of services, but you can get your own phone number that you can give out to students, you can set rules inside the application of when the phone rings, and you're not giving your personal cell phone number out. So you can mm-hmm. keep that to be private. So voice.google.com. Amazing tool. I love it. it will, uh, almost all my teachers at MTDA use it. It's a really great part of a way to keep your work and, 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 uh, uh personal life separated. Jen, do you want to give us a
1: quick, a quick ad for your conference before you do your geek of the week?
2: Sure. Um, sorry. I'm yawning there. Cause it's 10 o'clock. And, That's right.
1: and we're not going to keep you up much later.
2: Exactly. Um, are you talking about Atlas? Yeah. Yeah. So um, Association of Technology Leaders for Independent Schools. So if you're in an independent school and you are a tech director, a webmaster, um, a technology technician, a tech integrator, um, please check out Atlas. We're talking about cybersecurity here. And in fact, um, one of the things we've been addressing this year is cybersecurity at schools. Um, schools are second to hospitals for targets of ransomware. Um, the conference, um, uh, I, I love ISTI. I've gone to ISTI for years. I'm on the, the board at ISTI there too. Um, but the big difference is ISTE focuses primarily on educators and Atlas focuses on tech leaders. Um, so whether it's training your faculty or managing your vendors or rolling out your, um, your new infrastructure, I think it's a great resource. So please check us out. A-T-L-I-S, theatlas.org. Um, so my geek of the week, just continuing with, um, talking about privacy, because that's been the horse I've been beating for the last year and a half. Um, WLRN, um, NPR has just launched, um, a new podcast in, a new series, um, on privacy. Um, and the series is called The Privacy, um, Paradox. And it talks about, it's not specifically towards education, but as somebody who uses a lot of tech in their life, which I imagine anyone watching um, probably does as well. It's from note to self. Um, we use a lot of tech and we sometimes are aware of what we give up, sometimes not aware of what we give up, sometimes feel helpless about what we give up. Um, so, like, I use Waze. I live in Miami. We have a lot of terrible traffic. I need to get around. I kind of, start, like, resign myself to the fact that these people can now stalk me anywhere I go. Um, so it's addressing that issue that we care about privacy, but sometimes we feel helpless to navigate it. And they've got a great privacy questionnaire. Um, one of them was like, how do you feel when you see a terms of service? And most people kind of feel like, all right, like you don't really, you're at a loss of power. So it's investigating this issue on how we use technology in our day-to-day lives, especially it becomes more ubiquitous and less voluntary, because I don't think you can opt out of using the web. You can't opt out of using Google. You can't opt out of using digital services. And so I think it's time to bring that discussion forward instead of, I really hate that. Well, oh, just don't use Facebook or just don't use X. Mm-hmm. It's, you don't have that option.
1: There's an advocacy A need for advocacy within the privacy realm, within the digital citizenship realm, and within the surveillance realm, which we've talked about. And, uh, And probably that needs to fit under the auspices of digital citizenship. If citizenship is both rights and responsibilities, we probably have a responsibility to defend privacy. So,
2: Right. And it's an important conversation, and you're absolutely right. I think we need more advocacy, but who leads that? Right, like that's the bigger question. We, we do, but I mean, like, is that a consumer protection group at the Washington D.C. level? Is you know, because this transcends even borders. It does
1: absolutely. So. Well, we're big fans of Note to Self. So, yeah, sorry, right. podcast.
2: Yeah, All right. it's definitely worth checking out. It just started today. It was their first debut episode of the Privacy Paradox today.
1: Awesome. Well, my Geek of the Week, real quick, is a shout out from. Kevin Kelly, um, his book is The Inevitable Understanding 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future, <clears throat> and I'd never heard of this. It's called Cyborg Chess or Advanced or Centaur Chess, and it's a little bit like uh, Mixed Martial Arts, which he cites as well. I'm not an expert on this, uh, but I guess Mixed Martial Arts is sort of like bring whatever you want, you know, use all your tools, and um, – you know, the Centaur chess is basically use any kind of augmentation of, you know, software, you know, programs, AIs that you want. The human is still under control, but it is a di- it's a different classification. And um it's funny how we still have even teachers, but this happened at, at church in Sunday school where we, we we had this quiz coming up, and then our teachers like, don't use your phone, you can't Google. And I'm like, Dude, I am a cyborg and I use whatever tools that I, that I can to answer questions, deal with it. You know, and right. I think it disqualified our team or something. But, um, anyway, that's pretty cool that chess uh, is basically being enhanced by this. It's not like, Oh my gosh, now the AIs are here. So no need for humans to be competing. No, we still do. And there's this new classification. And somehow that's a pretty cool metaphor for thinking about yeah. all of us. Like we're all becoming. We're all becoming augmented, right? This tool, this phone, augments my capacity to consume and read, but also interact and learn. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's cool, kind of cool. So check it out. I'm not saying I'm going to go sign up to watch an augmented, you know, centaur chess match. It may not be really exciting, but I think it's pretty cool that it's there and it's something to probably share with kids. And what a great writing prompt, right? Use that as a writing prompt with your kids. You know, what do you think about centaur chess? You know, legit? You know, good, bad? I so, love
2: it. Yeah, uh, I just added that to my, um, to my reading list, my goodreads, by the way. Good
1: deal. Good deal. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell where I'm fr- uh, found online, pass it to Jen and Jason, and I think we can call it a night. Uh, Wes Fryer, my blog is speedofcreativity.org. I am W Fryer on Twitter, and I have done three Technology Tuesday posts on our uh, school learning showcase site, which is showcase.cassidy.org, and I'm now archiving, uh, those, uh, in a, in a Google doc. And it's just a good way. We're trying to amplify innovation and and innovative practice that's happening at our school. And so far, you know, three weeks in, I'm still going to the gym exercising and doing blog posts. Check with me in 52 weeks, you know, maybe the story will be different, but so far so good with the the new year's resolutions. Um, Jen, where can folks find you online?
2: Um, so on Twitter, I'm at teacher Jen Carey. Um, I blog at Indiana Jen, although I've been more inconsistent on that. I need to, to get on there. Uh, but I actually just blogged today about the privacy paradox. So um, Indiana Jen's like Indiana Jones, but Indiana Jen.
1: Well, um, and you didn't say it this time. Did you tell Jason you're archaeological?
2: Oh, yeah. My background, my graduate degree is in classical archaeology. Nice. So archaeologists are the techiest of all the fuzzy scientists. And nice. yeah, it, it is true. It is true. Um, I used to have to make my own databases and all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, Indiana Jen, um, and at teacher Jen Carey.
0: And my name is Jason Neifer. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, uh, located at the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. Um, I am on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I blog on the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, NCC, I'm sorry, blog.ncc.org, and, Registration is open now for our March 2017 conference in Portland, Oregon, where I will be co convening the Portland or Tech Savvy Teacher Portland Summit featuring uh, a Google Suite for Education, where we're bringing the best presenters from across the Pacific Northwest that know their Google to come hang out. So check out our conference at www.ncc.org. Uh, this awesome. is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We're here Wednesday nights, sometime, usually earlier, or later, depending on, um, uh, who's joining us. Uh, we broadcast live, um, at our website at techsr.com where you can also find the links to our, uh, links every week where you can find additional resources and articles and things we talked about or things we couldn't get to in our particular week. So thank you. Have a great week. And we'll see you next time.
2: Night.